Would you stand with me out of respect for God's word as we look to Matthew chapter 24? We're going to read verses 3 through 14. And I just apologize, it's not going to be up on the screen this morning because uh, we did a shift here at the end of the week. And uh, in fairness to our production team, they bent over backwards to make sure that we had as much ready as possible. Uh, but I wasn't even planning on reading this at the beginning of our sermon. So uh, they're like panicking back there going like, oh no. Uh, but I hope you can read along with me in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, um, you can always pick up a free one out in the lobby. We've got those out available to you. But this morning, for right now, as we read, if you don't have the Bible in front of you, I'd encourage you maybe just to close your eyes uh, and listen as I read out of Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 3. As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved." And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Church, hear the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. So I want to pray here in just a minute, but before I do that, due to the craziness in our world and obviously all of the things that we have seen happening, which I'm sure everybody in this room is aware of in the Ukraine. And, and I don't think it's just that. I think it's broader that, but than that. But because of all of those things, I'll just be honest. Like, I, I felt very, very, very pressed by the Spirit this past week uh, to pivot uh, out of the book of Colossians just for a week or two to kind of talk and to share a few things that I really believe that the Lord wants us to consider in times like this. And I know that if you're like me, in your homes, in your workplaces, with your friendships, even within your own thoughts, there's probably been a ton of things just buzzing around in your heads. Maybe questions about what, what, do we, what do we do? What does this all mean? What is this going to mean for our economy? What's it going to mean for our gas prices? What's it going to mean for our supply chains? What does this mean for the political situations of places like China and Russia, even Europe, even for ourselves? What are the long-term impacts going to be? What should I be doing for my family, if anything? How should the church respond? How should I individually respond as a follower of Jesus Christ? Should I be scared? Should I be nervous? Should I stock up on ammunition? That's a Kansas thing to do, right? <laughs> stock up on ammunition and, and food stores. Like, what does this mean regarding, what, what does this all mean regarding the end times? Are we in the end times? Should we be looking for the end times to come? Like, like is Jesus is about to return? Is there a great tribulation about to come down upon us all? Maybe some of you all in this space haven't even thought about any of these things. Like maybe you've just thought, man, like this is all happening over there. It's not that big a deal. It's not going to affect us. 
I think you're sorely wrong and mistaken, but maybe that's been your world where you're just like, I, I have too many other things on my plate to even give concern to what's happening in a place as far away as like the Ukraine. But in light of all of this, and probably a lot more that you've probably been thinking about, I want to do my best to be faithful to communicate what he has laid on my heart and only what is of him, not as what is of me. And I know that in doing that, some of the things that I feel we need to share in the next couple of weeks may make us really uncomfortable for a variety of reasons. And I think every single person in this room or listening online is going to need to discern in their own hearts what the Spirit of God is saying to you. For some, I think you'll probably walk away just feeling really encouraged, feeling really affirmed, and being like, amen, at every corner, like, this is awesome, and this is what the church needs. Others, you, you may feel really uncomfortable or uneasy, maybe even convicted at something that the Lord is just revealing in your own heart. And I want to encourage you that as you wrestle with these things, and, and I really, really hope you wrestle with these things. That is, you don't just hear what we're talking about, but you take them home and you wrestle with them within your families, within your friend groups, within your spouses, your di at the dinner tables, at the breakfast tables. I hope you wrestle with these things. And, and I hope that as you do so, that in your times with him, he will show to you what you need to hear. Because I believe that if we listen to him and his spirit, and we then act upon what it is that he's leading us to, that even if we're uncomfortable it will ultimately lead us to deeper walks with him and a deeper and more joyous life as Christians and as believers. And so I truly pray that that is what you will experience. And so with that in mind, I, I want to just go to the Lord and I just want to ask uh, for his blessing this morning. Father, you know just the amount of prayers that have gone into this time not just from my own heart, but my, my wife and the elders and the elders' wives and, and, and friends who know uh, that, that we're deviating, that we're shifting away because we just want to be faithful to you. And we want to be faithful to communicate to your people what it is that you want them to hear. And so, Lord, I pray and plead that, that you would help me to decrease this morning, that you increase. Father, that you would be seen and Lord, if there's any of these things that are of me, that they would just be forgotten. But Lord, that if it's of you, that it would take root in the hearts of your people and you would change us and shape us and shift us to be the people you want us to be. We need you. I need you to speak through me, a very broken vessel. We all need you to open our eyes and our ears to any area in which we are not in line with your will and the way you want us to be, and the way you want us to live. I, I genuinely believe that's why most people are in this space this morning, here listening or, or, or joining us online, that, that we want to hear from you. And so may our ears be open. And may your spirit be profoundly powerful in your people. And Father, may he open the eyes, even of those who may not know you, that they might see your glory, and see your wonder, and put their trust in you. Lord, this is our prayer. This is our hope. This is what we ask and pray. I ask all these things in the glorious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So, wars 
and rumors of wars, famines, natural disasters, economic downfall, preparedness, all of these things. And, and here's the thing, for many people in this space right now, I don't know how many, but I know for some people in this space, what we're experiencing in our world today feels very unique. It is not. For many of us, we've walked through all kinds of things from 9-11 to wars in Iraq to wars in Afghanistan to economic downturns in 2008 to uh, World War I and II. I don't know how many of y'all walked through that, but maybe someone, right? Or you can remember certain components of that or Vietnam, the Korean War. I mean, there's always been these things, and yet we come to these moments, and I think every time we come to these moments, it generates a whole new set of questions for the people of God. Like, what do we do with this? How are we to think of this? Because this is unsettling for us all. And I want to help give us direction in what I think that God wants us to see in the midst of moments like this. But I think before we can answer some of those really, really valid questions that we have, I think we need to get underneath all of that. And then we need to look at some fundamental and foundational realities, even some fundamental questions for us. Like, what is God actually doing? Is he doing something? Or is everything just spiraling out of control and he's trying to fix things as they go about? Like, or is God actually moving and God doing a work? Is he, is he actually accomplishing something? Now, I, I think the answer to that question is yes. But I think an even more fundamental question that we need to ask as we start to think about even the things that are going on in the Ukraine, and I think we could have asked this about COVID as well, is a fundamental question asking, what is the focal point of everything that happens in this world? What's the focal point? I think that a lot of us have the wrong focal point. And I want to help us to see and to think about the right focal point of everything that's going on in our world. And before I do that, or maybe as I do that, I want to be very, very clear on the outset and say unequivocally that God loves you. God cares for you. He cares for me. He is compassionate. He is kind. He delights in his people. God cares and loves for us. We, we love to quote the text like John 3, 16, that for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him should not perish. And I don't want anything that I say to take away from that reality. He loves us because he created us both physically as he knit us together in his, our, our mother's wombs. And he loves us spiritually as his people, as he's making us new creation spiritually. Like he loves us us. But sometimes we can tend to take a truth and swing a pendulum way too far and way overweigh that truth, if you will, to a point where it becomes unhealthy. And I think for many in our world, we have a perspective that is very skewed from what God actually intends. Now, let me help you see this. When we think about love in our mind's eye, we think oftentimes that love is something that's generated, yes, stick people, you love them, I know, we all love them, right? We think of love is generated from one person to another, right? So, so you see somebody, 
And you look at that person and you see a certain value in that person. You see a certain beauty in that person. You see certain gifts in that person. And that generates a love in you where you're like, man, I want to be next to this person. And I want my world to revolve around this person. Like, I remember this really, really clearly with my wife. Like, the first time I met Karen, like, I was like, wow, she's beautiful. I know that's not where I'm supposed to start, but it's where I started. That's where most of us start, right? Like I saw, she was beautiful, and then I got to know her personality, and I thought she's so kind and generous and loving, and she loves the Lord so much. And like I just fell in love with her because she was such a wonderful person, and and frankly, she was just she was awesome. I think she thought the same about me. You'd have to ask her. Like I hope, but we this is how we view love, right? And this is one of the reasons why it's so painful for us when someone rejects us. Because it's not just a rejection of any just random thing. Like, it's a rejection of our value and our awesomeness, if you will, in the eyes of that person. And we start to think, well, like, I guess I wasn't good enough. And this is the way we view it. And we don't, we don't question this. This is normal for us. And so what happens is we can easily bring this idea into our Christian faith, believing that God sits up in heaven. There's my picture of God. I know it's not very accurate, but there it is. Like God sits up in heaven and he looks down. Thank you, Sarah. I love your laugh. Um, But God sits up in heaven and he looks down at us and he just sees these poor victims of sin. And he looks at them and is like, man, these people are so awesome. And they're so amazing. And they're so great. And yes, they're a little bit tainted by sin, but I just, I love them so much. And I want to save them. And some of that is true. And some of that is very, very skewed. But our view goes oftentimes, and at least in our mind's eye, that in compassion, God sees us in all of our wonder. And he then lays down his life for us to take care of our sin, to take care of our punishment. And once we see this and we put our faith in him, then he continues to orbit around us as if we are something great. He continues to care about our good and and hope for our blessing and give us life and that we, in some respects, are the center of God's world. Because he just sees so much awesomeness in us. In this perspective, one that I think much of evangelicalism needs to repent of, we are the focal point. We are the center of the gospel. And we live our lives, very few of us would ever say this out loud, but we live our lives in such a way where we see that God has rescued us because of our awesomeness and to our awesomeness. And now he orbits around us to make sure that our lives continue to be healthy and good and comfortable and peaceful and affluent and amazing. And so when something bad happens, we get really confused. Because we're like, well, how could this be? Because if God is here to make me happy, and if God is here to, to only to look at me and to center around me and to, to like orbit around my life, like how could this bad thing take place? Like he's not meeting my expectations of him. And so what we have to do is we have to begin to justify those hard and painful things. We start to say things like, oh, well, I can't see it, but this actually will work out for my good. I just have to wait, and then I'll see it one day. Or... Even worse, we start to go, well, maybe, maybe it's because I'm not being faithful enough, and so I'm making him mad, 
And so maybe he's now not going to heap those blessings upon me in the same way. We see something like what's going on in Ukraine, and we ask the question, like, how could this be happening to the church in Ukraine? How could this be happening to our brothers and sisters where they're being obedient and faithful and, and then their, bomb, their bombs drop on their homes and their churches and in their homes and they have to flee in droves to another country? Like, how could this be? How could this be that now my family is going to have to suffer so much strife because of what's happening over there? If God loves me, like, how could this be? And we ask these questions. Because our perspective is that we're at the center and we are the focal point. Church, this is wrong. In fact, this kind of a God is not the God of the Bible. He does not revolve around us. He loves us, yes, absolutely he loves us. But if we, in our mind's eye, are the center of God's world, then he is not a God, that is an idol. He has not made us the focal point of history. And if we see ourselves as the focal point of history, then that God, that's not him. The word we're serving something else. And we, we need to repent of that, we need to turn from that. So here's the truth. The truth of the reality is this. God is God without us. God is a God of love without us. Like before any of us existed in creation, he was love. You know why? Because the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit do not take any theological understanding of the Trinity from this drawing, but the Father... Son, and Holy Spirit orbit around God. They love God. He loves himself. He is about his glory, his exaltation. He is God. He doesn't need us for anything. He doesn't. We can claim that that's who he is. He's beautiful in that sense. He makes all of creation. And what I love about who he is and his self-sufficiency is that as he makes creation, by its very nature and its existence, all of creation points to him. It orbits around him. It exalts him. It praises him. That's why when you stand in front of the Grand Canyon, something stirs in you. What's crazy about all of this is that he made us. He made us. And even though he is the most valuable, the most satisfying, even though there's nothing better in this world to exalt, even though there's nothing more worthy of glory, glory, and even though he is the only focal point of history, when he makes us, we refuse to give him glory. That was what the fall was all about. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. We said, no, we will glorify ourselves. We will put ourselves upon the throne. We will exalt ourselves, which is what makes what I just shared about some of our perspectives so terrifying. But what's amazing about God is that he sees us in the midst of that rebellion and in the midst of that hatred towards him, in the midst of all of our sin, when there is very little that is lovely in us, he chooses to love us. 
Not because we're awesome, but because of his glory and his character and his nature and because he seeks to exalt his name and to redeem us. And he does. And he redeems us, brothers and sisters. He redeems us out of our self-exalting kind of world and he brings us back into a world where we can now orbit him. And now all of our world becomes about glorifying him. No longer are we trying to glorify ourselves. Like this is what he's done. He is the focal point. We are to seek his glory, his exaltation in all things. And brothers and sisters, you may sit there and be like, man, this sounds like a really egotistical, prideful God. It is not because, he is the, because the most loving thing that he can do is give us himself. And that's exactly what he did. There's no greater treasure, including us. There's no greater treasure, including our peace, including our comfort. Simply put, we're, simply, we're just not the focal point of anything that happens in this world. And I, and, and I want to just make sure that we're very, very clear about this, really, because this can really push against us. Because we think, how could I not be the focal point? I mean, doesn't he love me? Well, let's just look at Scripture and ask some questions. Why is it that we have received grace? Why have you received grace? Well, I write this text down. I don't have time to cover all these, but I encourage you to read them. Romans chapter 1, verse 5 tells us that we have received grace for the sake of his name among the nations. Wait, what? I thought I received grace because I'm so awesome. No. You have received grace from God for the sake of his name among the nations. Why were you made? You know what the scripture clearly tells us? Isaiah 43, chapter 7. It's absolutely clear cut. There's no misinterpretation available here. You and I were made for one reason and one reason alone, his glory. His glory. Why does he blot out our transgressions? Because he loves us so much? Well, yes, there's, there's truth to that. But let's not miss the other component to this question. In Isaiah 43, verse 25, and I'll just read it. I, I am he, he who blots out transgressions for my own sake. He blots out my transgressions for his sake, not mine. You can disagree with me all you want. We can feel the weight of this and like how life-changing and altering this is, is we like to see ourselves in the center of this world, but the scripture's really, really clear. He blots out our transgressions for his sake. Why does he lead me into the paths of righteousness? Some of you know that text, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me in places of still waters and pastures. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Like, that sounds like a pretty awesome text that's focused upon me. You know why he leads us in paths of righteousness? Psalm 23.3 says, for his name's sake. Why did he save Israel? His people who he talks about as he loves them and he delights in them. Psalm 106, 8 says he saved them for his name's sake and that his power might be known. I think we're getting the point, right? Why will he not forsake us? Why will he not forsake us when we fail and when we mess up and when we rebel, even though we have faith in Jesus Christ? Well, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22, for his name's sake. That's why he will not 
forsake us for his name's sake. Why did he raise up Pharaoh? Remember Pharaoh in the Old Testament? Pharaoh in the Old Testament who hurt the people of Israel, enslaved the people of Israel, who, who he had to re- pull them out of Israel because they were having so much agony. They were crying out to the Lord. Why did he raise up Pharaoh? Romans chapter 9, verse 17, to show his power and to make his name known among the nations. Why does God act in the midst of our sin? Ezekiel 36, 32. And this one's one you got to read. It's such an important one. He reminds us in this text, just in case we think that he is going to act in the midst of our sins for our sake, he says, it is not for your sake. Let that be known to you. This is so important for us to understand the focal point of everything that happens in this world and in this history so that we, with the psalmist in Psalm 115, can declare, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Church, we must repent of a self-centered gospel that puts us and our good at the center of all of God's doings. That is not what the word of God tells us. And there are churches all over the place that will tell you that that is reality, that God is for you, which he is, but that means that all he does is seek to make your life as good as possible here in this world. And that is never a promise he makes. It is never a promise that he makes. And if we are ever to see revival in our country, I believe we must start here and put the attention back where it belongs, which is upon the glory of the Almighty God. And if we don't, we won't see that revival. And that means we need to repent. And I want to be very clear. I am guilty of some of these things just as much as I think many of the rest of us are. Because it is so ingrained into who I am. The course of this world's history and everything that happens in it only has one end, and that is to glorify the almighty Yahweh, God. You and I are not the heroes of the story of this world. The scripture is clear. We're a mist. And you say, well, man, Darren, this is so discouraging. No, it's not, because even though we are these things, he has still bent himself and looked upon us when we deserved nothing. The point is, we're not the focal point of the story. And because of this, and because the greatest good that could ever be given to us has already been given to us as we've been reconciled to the only real treasure that is, which is him, and because all of our real and true good is guaranteed for us in eternity, amen? in a new world, and a new heaven, because of that, then we can truly walk through this world understanding what he is doing. I'm going to make a statement that is really hard for us. God will often sacrifice your and my temporal and temporary good and comfort for his glory. And even more often, will call us to voluntarily lay down our good and our comfort for his glory so that we might have the fullness of life and discover him as the true treasure. 
I'm going to read that again. God will often sacrifice our temporal and temporary good and comfort for his glory and even more often call us to voluntarily lay down our good and comfort for his glory so that we might have the fullness of life and discover him as the true treasure. Think of John the Baptist. The famous line of John the Baptist as he sees Jesus, he says, I must decrease so he may increase. And God allows John the Baptist to be imprisoned and beheaded so that the glory of Christ could be elevated. What about Stephen? This is another one. Stephen, faithful servant of the Lord. And at the early church, Stephen is stoned to death, right? So God allows Stephen's temporary and temporal in this moment good and comfort to be laid down so that God's glory would be shown in Stephen's martyrdom. And what happens to the church after Stephen is stoned? They're dispersed into the world taking the gospel. And you know what Stephen would have said? Totally for it. I'm totally for it. Because the proclamation of the gospel and the glory of God is the most important thing in his heart. See, we can never believe this and we can never live in lives that example this as long as we believe we're the center of everything that happens in this world. It can never be possible for us to consider all of these things if the God that we've created in our own heads orbits around us and our good. But if we have truly heard the good news then the greatest treasure in this universe has found us, not vice versa. And he has called us into lives that orbit around his glory and his name and his exaltation and his good at the expense sometimes even of our own lives. Does God love us? Absolutely. With a completely self-denying and yet at the same time self-glorifying kind of love that is not focused on our awesomeness, but calls us to experience and focus on his awesomeness. Because he is awesome, isn't he? Beyond anything else we can imagine. We must repent of living our lives like we are the focal points of history then and only then can we begin to see that God is more concerned about his glory extending to the corners of the earth than he is about our 401ks or even our gas prices. He's more concerned about his glory extending to the four corners of the earth than he is about our gas prices. And I know that's really hard for us to believe. But when we do begin to get this idea and we do begin to see the correct focal point of all of history, then we can also begin to trust in the sovereign hand of God who is moving history in exactly the direction he wants it to be moved. And when pain comes our way and when patients crumble, we can trust in the sovereign hand of God. When bombs are dropped and when famine comes and when economies crash, we can see that none of it happens due to lack of power on God's part. None of it happens due to lack of his control. None of it happens due to the lack of his purposes. None of it happens even due to a lack of his love for us. 
But it happens because he is sovereignly moving history forward so that his glory will cover the face of this world, as Habakkuk says. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35 says this, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. That doesn't mean value. What that means is, is when the inhabitants of the earth try to thwart God's will, he just pushes us over. All right, like all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Have any of us been tempted to look at the Ukraine and go, what are you doing? He is not surprised by Vladimir Putin. He is not surprised by what is going on there. And nothing thwarts the hand of God as he moves history to its end. And he is about something. And we are told exactly what he is about in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. He is about the increase of his government and of peace, which there will be no end on the throne of David. This is about Jesus and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's what he's doing right now, brothers and sisters. God is in control. He's accomplishing exactly what he has set out to do which is to exalt his name in a world that sought to reject his name. He's extending his loving nature to a world that does not deserve it. In Matthew chapter 24, which we read at the beginning of our time, the disciples asked Jesus, when will the end come? And he tells them, he says that when there's war and rumors of war, when nation rises against nation and kingdom against nation, when there's famine and earthquake, and then he says this, he says, when all that starts to happen, see that you are not alarmed, church. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. Christian, don't be alarmed. Be encouraged. We know exactly what's going to happen, don't we? We may not know the timing. We may not know the specifics. We know exactly what's going to happen. And all of this is happening at his hand. It has purpose to extend his glory and his kingdom even if we can't see it and not only should we not be alarmed because he is sovereign over it and because he's sovereign over all of it but brothers and sisters we should also be aware it isn't going to get better it's going to get worse verse 9 is really clear Verse 8 tells us these are just birth pains. These are the beginning of birth pains. Verse 9 tells us what's going to happen next. They're going to deliver you up to tribulation. Even put you to death. It's going to get worse because the nations will turn on the people of God. And they will begin to deliver us to tribulation and even put us to death. And if we don't have the right focal point of history, that will crush us and discourage us because we will ask the question, God, why are you letting this happen? But he's already told us it's going to happen. If the point of this world is about him, this isn't terrifying for the Christian. And it's not hopeless for the Christian and our preparedness for these things 
has nothing to do with how much ammunition you can put in your house, how many MREs you can store in your house, how many generators you buy, how many chickens you put in your backyard, how many pieces of silver or Bitcoin that you buy to try to stave off the, or how many cans of gas you fill up and store in your shed. Like, your preparedness has nothing to do with that. Your preparedness comes in when you recognize your call to arms to put on the armor and go to war knowing what is ahead and what is the goal of your life to glorify him and to extend his kingdom. If we hide in the bunker, we will only experience fear and anxiety. We are called to war. This is the time for us to recognize history is about the glory of our great God. Amen? I'm not trying to be discouraging. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Because we know the focal point of history and we trust in the sovereign hand of our God, we can trust that he is going to do what he needs to do for his glory. And we can lay down our false expectations and we can know and absolutely already know what victory is going to look like and that his sovereign hand is going to accomplish that victory. And when the harder days come, if we're faithful, we'll be able to rejoice. You know why we'll be able to rejoice? Because we'll recognize exactly what Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, verse 14. Because of these things and how my people conduct themselves in the midst of these things, this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Do you want to be a part of the testimony to nations? Do you know that might mean your death? That's what he's talking about in Matthew 24. Listen, like as you go to your death and as you walk through the tribulations of this world, like, your testimony, as you go out into it, is going to move the kingdom forward. And if our hearts are aligned with his heart, and our purpose is aligned with his purpose, and our desire is ultimately his glory, even at the expense of our own lives, then the testimony of his saints will propel the gospel, and our joy will be sure, and our reward will be secure Armed with these perspectives, we need to direct the placement of our thoughts. I said I was leaving Colossians, but as Lewis reminded in our teaching team, I'm kind of doing an addendum to what we talked about last week. Set your mind on things above. Is the war in Ukraine bad? Absolutely. From a human perspective, we hate it. There's death, there's pain, we hate a tyrant driving tanks through people's streets and destroying their homes and their, their, their economies and their stores. And we are called to take up arms, to care for the needy, to fight for injustice, to care for the homeless, to care for the orphan. And we're going to talk specifically about some of those things next week. But we also have our eyes to see what's really going on. All the things we've talked about, that there is an eternal work that is happening in the Ukraine that is far more glorious than anything we see with our human eyes. In the midst of that suffering, God's hand is moving and steering even the hearts of kings. 
And that is to the end of his kingdom expanding and ultimately to his glory. I want you to ponder for just a few moments some realities because if we begin to see what's going on with a different perspective, then we can start to see that post-Russia-Ukraine, in that time frame, like the church in the Ukraine has become one of the healthiest and strongest in all of Europe. And what is God doing to that healthy church? He is dispersing them all across Europe into Romania and Poland and Moldova, and they are taking their testimony of faithfulness and their trust in God into some of the most atheistic, hardened, secular, and humanistic parts of this world. That's the, that's the work of God. He's sending missionaries. They, they probably don't want to be missionaries, but he's doing it anyway. Right? I, I read one report uh, where uh, the, uh, in Ukraine, Christian stores have run out of Bibles for the first time because there's so many people who want to read God's word for the first time. Can we celebrate and praise that? Like, amen? Like, that's exactly what we're talking That's what this is all about. Another report is how the Christians in the Ukraine, they're the ones that are opening up their homes for refugees and serving their communities. The Church of Jesus is rallying and setting up orphanages in places like Poland and refugee camps and ministries to care for the needs of those that are coming across the border that may not know Jesus. It's the Christians that are laying down to do that. And not only, but certainly they're there. Many of those who are risking their lives to get people out of the Ukraine, guess who they are? They're Christians because they do not see their lives as something to be grasped and held on to. But for the glory of God, they will lay their life down and they will run into the problem instead of away from it. This is what it means for Christians to take up our arms. But if we see ourselves as the focal point of history, we will never do it. And it's why we need to repent of it. If we truly have the foundation of understanding the right focal point of history, and if we truly trusted the sovereign hand of God to move history along and understood the most important of things is the gospel being proclaimed, then we would be far less worried about what's going to happen to our economy and far more concerned about bending our knees and pleading that the Lord would guide us and direct us in the work that he is already doing for the sake of his glory, and for the sake of his gospel. But we have to get our eyes off ourselves before we can see the work of God in this world. Now, as I kind of close our time, I want to say a couple things. We are investigating as a church right now how we can be involved, and our desire is to send people not just finances, but to send people to go. Can you even fathom what a country the size of Poland is going to do with 800 some odd refugees? How are they going to handle those logistics? Like This is one of the times where the church can say, we're going to lay things down and we're going to run to the problem and care for people. And so our missions leadership team, Paul and Sylvia and so many others, are already beginning to think about how we can send people and look at that. And so if you're one who we were saying, would you go? And you'd be like, I'd absolutely raise my hand and I would go. And I would get on a plane and I would go to Poland or I'd go to Romania. Then right after this service, you can go put your name on a piece of paper. I don't know what it's going to cost. 
We don't know what it's going to look like, but if you're interested, then as we find those things out, we'll let you know. Because we want to be a kind of church that says it's about the gospel. It's not about our comfort, and we'll run. And so if that's you, then absolutely do that. If you want to give, you can do that online. Don't take away from your typical giving to the church, but our group is already looking at ways we can give to ministries that we trust. And so you can do that by going, and, and, and when you give, there's a little designation for missions, and you can say Missions Ukraine, and we will make sure that gets to a ministry that we trust, that we know is doing the right work, that actually is helping the problem and taking the gospel. But far more, we can pray. And not just pray that God would end it, but pray that God would extend his kingdom through it. And pray that God would be glorified in the midst of it. And pray that God would wake up his church to what's truly important and what's most our calling and our purpose to exalt his name and to glorify him. I want to end our time with prayer. And so here's what I'm going to ask. And I know this can make us uncomfortable at times because we're not the best at prayer. Two things. First and foremost, I'm going to say this. I'm coming back to the church tonight at 6 p.m. to pray. If you want to join me and my family, we'll be here over in the hospitality suite at 6 p.m. We're not going to have a service. We're not going to do anything major. We're not going to have lots of songs. We're just going to pray. You want to come back? Pray. Can you imagine anything better for your kids than to see you lay down stuff that's going on in your life and your day than to just come and pray for God or for what God is doing in this world in places like the Ukraine? So that's number one. Number two, we're going to pray this morning. And so I want to, I want to do a couple things. First, I want to call pastors and elders uh, and prayer counselors. Would you guys go ahead and come on up? And you don't have to stand. I know that can be uncomfortable. Maybe just kind of sit over on these seats or on these edges. And, and as we take some time here in the next few minutes to just pray as a church, if you feel like I have this week that you need to repent of having the wrong focal point, and you just want to pray with someone, you want to talk to somebody further about what this means and what this looks like, during this time, just come up. I want to also just say, if you want to pray with a group of people, and not just the ones that you came around here in just a minute, as I lead through some topics, like maybe come over to one of these sides and just grab a group of people and just start praying. But what I want to do is lead us in a time of prayer. I want to encourage you, to begin to pray out loud. I've said this before kind of jokingly, but it's good to be reminded. It's okay if you interrupt each other. God can still hear you. Well, he can hear us all at the same time. Like this is the amazingness of our God. And we're going to pray for some things as we lift our voices up. And so I'd encourage you to gather together with your family, your friends, maybe a group of others that you maybe you don't know. Introduce yourself. But we're going to walk through some prayer. And that first has to start with us asking for forgiveness and repenting of being a people who can so often have a self-centered gospel. And if you have avoided that temptation, praise God, I am grateful for you, then you pray for the rest of us who struggle with that, including me. 
But if we don't repent to the Lord and recognize and confess where we have failed, then how can we ask him to listen to us in the rest of our prayers? And so I want to call us to pray. And we're going to do that right now, out loud with one another. Whether it's in a group or you want to be silent, that's okay. But I'm going to start, and then we're just going to take a few minutes and just confess. Father, I just, I personally confess that without intending to, without ill intent, in the brokenness and the wickedness of my own heart, I have oftentimes put myself at the center of the gospel and not you. And it has caused me to be selfish. It has caused me to be apathetic to the cause of the gospel around the world. It has caused me to be silent when I should be bold. It has caused me to be fearful when I should be trusting. It has caused me to elevate my idols of comfort and security and protection and control above your glory. Father, I pray that you forgive me for that. And I pray that you forgive us as a church, your church. Father, I pray that you hear the confession of your people and that you forgive us as you promised to so faithfully do. Just confess to the Lord with those around you, to him, however you feel led in the next couple of moments. Would you now take a few moments to just pray again, pray out loud and pray together. Let's lift our voices to the Lord, but pray that the Lord would strengthen our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine for his glory to give them boldness, to help their faith to be steadfast and to be firm. That he would protect families and he would give them words to speak and he would also help them to know at times when they need to be silent, that they would have wisdom, but that they would be able to proclaim the good news of our Savior to great effect and power in the midst of such difficult times. now pray for open doors for the gospel, open hearts, that hard hearts that would never have seen the good news of Jesus Christ would be softened, that his kingdom would come into the lives of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. Now pray for the church in Europe, Poland, and Romania, that God would strengthen what will likely be weary hands as they care for the needs of the 1.4, as of this morning, million refugees pouring over their borders. That God would give them 
the hearts of Christ to wash their feet and to serve them for the sake of your kingdom and for the sake of the glory of God. Would you lift up our brothers and sisters there? Would you pray for those Russians that are in the Ukraine that they would encounter the gospel and that those who are dropping bombs would turn and be saved, that they might come to salvation, that they might be faced with their own deaths and turn to Jesus. Let's be faithful to pray for what feels like an enemy the way Jesus would want us to. Would you pray now for laborers to be sent into the harvest? Father, we pray in accordance with the things that we've talked about this morning that for your name's sake, your gospel would be proclaimed in the Ukraine, in Russia, but not just there. I pray that even for us this morning that you would create in us a new zeal to take your gospel and to proclaim it in this city, in this place, that we would be the laborers for the harvest of this mission field that we would be more about your glory than we are about the concern of our own safety and comfort. But like so many faithful brothers and sisters that have gone before that has borne witness to your awesomeness and your wonder that we would lay our lives down and be willing to lay our lives down. Not just reactively, but proactively seeking to glorify you and exalt your name because of what you have done and because of who you are. Father, would you work that in us? And Father, now as we turn our attention to your table, may your glory and your name continue to be exalted in this place this morning.